Hello and welcome to No Man's Land. We are a podcast and publication about moderate politics, in particular about how we can have a discourse that avoids a culture war. Hence the name, about being between two warring trenches. The podcast is run by me, Steve O'Neill, and my collaborator Martin Rogers. We tend to be joined each week by a guest to talk us through a topic in depth, and you can find us on Medium or wherever you get your podcasts. We really hope you enjoy it. Oh, and please do follow us and leave a review. Hello, and welcome to No Man's Land podcast. After some recent sessions covering the Conservative Party, we're taking a different approach today. We're joined by Christabel Cooper. Welcome, Christabel. Please introduce yourself. Hi, um, great to be here. Um, my name is Christabel Cooper. I'm a Labour councillor in Hammersmith and Fulham, and I'm also a freelance data analyst. So um, I do a bit of work looking at, well, all sorts of data, but um, I particularly enjoy looking at political data and I tweet quite a lot about it. So um, I will have some thoughts, no doubt, about data and politics in during this podcast. Fantastic. Well, first of all, if you wouldn't mind starting off, can you tell us your about your experience as a Labour councillor, first of all? Well, it's as I'm sure uh, most of your listeners know, uh, local government is in a difficult uh, position right now. It's one of the areas that have been cut most in terms of funding from central government under the last 10 years. Um, so we are increasingly having to do more with less resources coming from central government. And I think sometimes often people aren't quite aware how much of local or government's uh, money does come from the centre rather than from locally raised taxes. So it is it has been very difficult, I think, for local authorities up and down the country, Tory and Labour um, in the last 10 years to um, to continue to maintain the level of services that our residents expect whilst getting less money. Um, from from uh, from Westminster, um, I think it's you know it's it's an interesting challenge because of course local you know local government is the only place that Labour has been in power in the last ten eleven years now. Um, so it is, and you know, the, one of the reasons I wanted to become a councillor was out of a sense of, well, you know, everything was looking bleak, everything, uh, you know, in, in, this was in 2015, 2016. Um, it didn't look like Labour was anywhere near gaining power nationally. But actually, my local authority was doing some really good stuff. Um, and it just seemed like, you know, an opportunity to be able to do something for your local community, even in the absence of having a Labour government uh, at Westminster. Um, so yeah, it's 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 challenging um, just because of the constraints that we are under, um, and you know sometimes it's it's it, it can be frustrating because sometimes people don't really realize. I certainly didn't realize actually how much councils do and what they are responsible for. I think a lot of people just think it's kind of bins and, and potholes and, and, and that's it. And actually, there's there's a huge amount else that councils do. We've got an entire industrial strategy here. Um, we, you know, we, 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 we do a lot, an awful lot of kind of quite, quite visionary things, I think. Um, but yes, it's a chance to make a difference in the absence of a of a of a national government. Um, so yeah, and it's and it's an opportunity to see what it's like to govern and the constraints and the practical problems that you have to solve to do that. Can I just ask you to sort of slightly bring together your two strands that you talked about, your experience as a Labour councillor, your work as a data analyst, and one of the, so firstly was the what role data has in politics which is not just about sort of governing but where you said that a lot of people don't understand what gov local government does and how much it raises how the cuts have been um implemented and should we say distributed to try to be sort of neutral on it so how and or in fact do you try to sort of educate people engage with people um, and so that might be one way that you might talk about the, the role of data in politics. And I just wondered uh, how you sort of bring both of your strands of interest together, specifically in an area where people don't know a great deal about it. 
Yeah, it's it's interesting. We have a really good business intelligence department at Hammersmith and Fulham that I work quite closely with. And so they've done stuff like during the COVID crisis, they've, um, they, they, I mean, they're, they're brilliant in terms of gathering data in terms of, you know, when, when the government finally realised that local authorities should be doing most of the test and trace um, uh, work, they, they took it on. But I mean, even ahead of that, they'd sort of put in really innovative stuff like um, uh, getting, getting um, automatic calls to residents who were uh, vulnerable and who were shielding. Um, so I've been trying to, to raise the profile of, of some of the work that they do and some of the just more proactive things that the council does. I mean, it is, it is, it is hard and it's a bit of a chicken and an egg problem in that because we do have a very centralised state in, certainly in England, um, people are quite disengaged from local politics. Turnout for elections is typically, you know, around about 40%, whereas it's over 60, 70% in general elections. Um, so there's a sort of, there's a, there's a, you know, there's a lack of, there's a lack of engagement with local government, but then that means that central government never wants to devolve power to it either because people don't, you know, that I, I don't. I don't think people sort of necessarily realise what can be done by by local government. Um, so yeah, we do try. We do try to um, do our best to to let people know what we're doing. And you know, I think certainly during the COVID pandemic, local authorities have had a bigger profile simply because we have had to do a lot of the work um you know letting people know about vaccinations we've you know put brought in lots of pop-up clinics um and of course you know like i said sort of managing the 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 test and trace the contact tracing um once the government had realized that that was the best thing to do so i think maybe you know in going forward people will have a better idea of what of what councils are doing but it is it can be quite hard do you think that, or what do you think rather um, explains that sort of lower level of engagement in local politics when in some ways you think it might be the other way around because you can see more immediately the impact that local government can have. So what do you think it is that explains that engagement and voting turnout rates is so much lower? I mean, there's there's a particular issue in London and I imagine other big cities in that you get very high turnover of residents. So people move around quite a lot. So they don't really kind of have the opportunity to engage with a, a particular local authority. But I mean, I think, you know, as I, as I said earlier, I think part of it is just that England is just an incredibly centralised state. Um, and has been for centuries in the way that most continental European countries aren't. Um, most continental European countries have, you know, historically been uh, made up of, of quite autonomous regions. And so therefore, there is a really strong sense of regional identity and a strong sense of, uh, you know, regional, regional government that, that reflects that. Um, so I think we're kind of fighting a bit against a long history of, of quite frankly, over-centralisation. And I suppose one of my hopes is, is that the current debate about the union and the devolution of powers to um, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland will then lead on to a greater debate about how we devolve power within England. I mean, I certainly think that, um, I'm maybe straying onto a different subject here, but I certainly think that the, the, the Tory government's promises around levelling up are going to be extremely difficult to deliver without giving devolving power more to local leaders because you know you, you can't and this is part of the problem this is one of the reasons that we have such large in, regional inequality is because decisions are being made by civil servants in Whitehall rather than by local leaders who actually have a much greater idea of what their residents and what their locality really needs and yet I you know I have to say I can't see any sign from this government of really wanting to hand over power to local leaders not least because quite a lot of them tend to be labor um but i think that that is an absolutely necessary prerequisite if we ever really are going to tackle regional inequality and deliver leveling up we're going to come on to talk i think about the red wall in a minute so maybe that would be a good time to come back to the leveling up stuff but 
before we do, I wanted to ask, given your kind of um, sort of interesting set of experiences, both as a local politician and with data, um, where you thought or what you thought about the centre ground? Um, of course, our podcast is, is one of the big themes of it is talking about um, the centre ground of politics. So where do you think the centre ground is now? Um, and also I'm interested where it is in sort of your ward in Hammersmith and Fulham as compared <laughs> to uh, the centre ground in, I don't know, the blue wall we were talking about a few weeks ago or other parts of the country. Um, because, of course, we talk about England as, a, as one kind of thing where, of course, it's a very big country of different areas. So we're really fascinated at your thoughts. Well, so Hammersmith and Fulham, my borough is quite interesting because it's it's a traditionally a swing borough. So uh, it was Tory as late as 2014. So that gives you... Um, probably quite a different perspective than if you are a councillor in a, a one-party state, whether that be a Conservative council. You know, a lot of the county councils are just, you know, sorry, county council is simply never going to be Labour, and ditto Haringey is, is, is never going to be Tory. So I think, I mean, I, I like it, the fact that it's a, it's a competitive borough, because I think it does mean that you have to seek out the centre ground, or at least you have to be aware of you have to take into account the views of swing voters you have to be aware that people can switch between parties i think often it's you know if you're if you're a party activist and you spend a lot of time with other party activists it can be quite difficult to break out of the mindset that everybody thinks like this or everybody ought to think like this and i think actually having to campaign in an area i mean you know hampshire and fulham is a is a very wealthy on average a very wealthy borough there are a lot of very rich people here but you know equally as in many other parts of london there's there's a lot of deprivation so you are talking to very different sorts of people and you are having to engage with them and you have to be aware that you know some of these some of the people that wouldn't traditionally be labor voters are people that you're going to have to win over in order to gain power um, so I think those lessons are quite, uh, you know, are obviously applicable nationally. And I and I and I feel quite grateful that, that as a as a local councillor, I I have exposure to that rather than just kind of either sort of hopelessly pounding the streets in a in a very Tory area or um, having the kind of uh, I, I think sometimes complacency of knowing that in in, in certain wards they're just simply never going to return anything other than a Labour candidate. Um, so, yes, I think I think it does give you I, did, I think it does give you an interesting perspective. Um, and, you know, there, there are, of course, a million different definitions of, 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 of centrism. But I think the one that I would want to adhere to, I think, is is just based on pragmatism is based on pragmatism and a lack of judgment about people who disagree with you. That, then that's, that, that's fascinating. Thanks. Um, you mentioned that in Hammersmith and Fulham, there's quite, people with quite different sort of backgrounds and probably different outlooks. Is that difficult from a Labour point of view? Because I imagine some groups might want quite a sort of um, radical type message uh, and others might find that a bit scary and want a more reassuring message. And, and do you, is it that you have to tailor messages very carefully to these different constituents or is there a kind of sweet spot that covers both? It sounds like a difficult challenge. Well, I mean, this is, I mean, it's, that's kind of broadly the challenge of politics is that, you know, we have a country of 67 million people, of all of whom have, have slightly different perspectives on things. And, and to build any kind of coalition that's going to get you into power at any level is obviously going to require providing a message that can unite quite disparate uh, groups of people. I mean, I think, I think the, you know, so some of the, some of the things that we've done here are quite unusual in the sense. So for example, we, we don't charge for social, we don't charge for um, social care home visits. Um, but I think, you know, at the same time, however, we have um, a fairly low um, council tax. So I think it's working out most most people, whether they identify as left wing or right wing, I think subscribe to an idea of basic fairness. So I think if you're doing things that 
are left-wing in the sense of kind of spending money or, or investing in public services, but which come across as fair and reasonable. I actually think that, you know, quite a large majority of people tend to tend to support that. I think where people often differ is they worry about how to pay for it. They worry about, you know, how sustainable it is. Um, and I suppose, you know, certainly the, the, the Labour administration here has been very careful not to raise council tax too much, simply to, to, to alleviate those, those fears. So I think you can. I mean, I think, you know, I think there are definitely things that you can do on one that, that appeal to a certain group of people, but don't alienate another group of people. Um, and I, you know, and I think, and actually, I think that that is something that, that we do well here um but you know it's it's the central challenge of politics um because you know under first past the post you need to get a certain percentage of the population to vote for you and not all of those people are going to agree on on everything so i think you do have to you do have to you know you you, you have to find ways of um attracting one group of people but in such a way that it doesn't just raise really, really big alarm bells with another group of people. So this seems a pretty good time to move on to the national picture for Labour because Labour nationally does seem to be struggling with this. How do you um, appeal to, you know, and it's not just one group. I don't, I don't think that's the right way to sort of think about politics. Is How do you... Um, sort of appeal to enough different groups. So considering the sort of national picture for Labour, um, you've, uh, can you explain why you think Labour can't ignore the Red Wall phenomenon and just concentrate on certain sort of urban liberal areas and what state Labour nationally is in, I suppose? <laughs> so I, I, like, I like the breadth of that question. Um, so... The the reason that Labour can't ignore the, lib, the sorry the the red wall is is pretty simple. It's just it's it's sheer numbers. Um, and I was just looking up before we started um, some some numbers from the last election. So I mean, if we're going to take um, the EU referendum vote as a proxy for sort of social conservatism versus social liberalism, I mean, there are after the twenty nineteen election. There were 16 seats which the Tories held where their majority was less than 10,000, where a majority of people voted remain. So there's those 16 seats where Labour, you know, potentially has got a pretty good chance if it appealed um, very specifically to a kind of socially liberal, remain, votee, urban, um, often young, often highly educated population. However... Um, there are 82 seats which are currently held by the Tories, which have got a majority of less than 10,000, um, which voted leave. So if we just kind of look on just the raw numbers, um, you know, the most we could we'd be likely to gain by just concentrating on, let's say, remain voters is 16. And yet there's over 80 in um, seats that that um, are Tory marginals that um, voted leave. And the even bigger problem than that is that, you know, devastating for Labour as the 2019 election was, it could have been worse. Um, there were, you know, considerable number, another, again, nearly another 80 seats, which Labour were left with a less than 10,000 majority, which voted leave. So, you know, not only, you know, in an ideal world, we could pick up those 16 remain voting seats, but if we targeted a message that was targeted very specifically at those voters and yet which alienated leave voters or social conservatives, you know, that gain of 16 seats would be far more than offset, probably by a loss of many more seats in more leave voting areas. So I think there's, you know, there are there are certainly demographic changes that are underway that probably will deliver Labour you know, I would say at least 10 seats in um, in more urban, suburban, commutery town places 
Um, so places like Canterbury, which we unexpectedly won in, in, in 2017, there, there, there are a number of seats like that that I would expect Labour to almost automatically pick up at the next election. But, you know, they're just it's just nowhere near enough. And I fear that if we just specifically targeted them whilst potentially alienating other sorts of voters, that actually we'd end up in an, you know, arguably in a worse position than we were in 2019. Why do you think it is that Labour's vote tends to be quite badly distributed compared to the Tories? And what I mean by that is that the Tories have tend to have a much more efficient sort of distribution of their votes in terms of votes to seats. So Labour racks up enormous majorities in sort of city centre-ish vote their seats, but can't sort of um, spend a bit of those votes elsewhere to be able to build a broader sort of coalition in terms of seats one. Have you got any insights into what explains that? Yeah, I mean, it's ultimately just demographics. It's that the sort of people who, I mean, age is a really big factor um, in voting um, propensity now. You just tend to get in cities a lot of young people, a lot of graduates, um, a lot of people with, a a lot of um, uh, people from ethnic minorities, all of which are, you know, these these are... um, these are factors which make you more likely to vote Labour. And there's just an awful lot of them concentrated in cities. Whereas the sorts of voters that um, uh, Tories, that, that, that at the moment are voting Tory, are just more evenly distributed um, amongst other seats. So particularly in, in towns, there's just a more even distribution of older, non-graduate um, predominantly white white voters so it's just it's it's just a question really of 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 demographics interestingly i mean we may see some change in that due to the pandemic in that we're seeing we well we we think we're seeing um people leaving city centers and going out to the suburbs or out to commuter towns and so a lot of those people will be those 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 young graduate liberally types who who often vote labor and so actually if they if they distributed themselves a bit more evenly um in sort of, you know some places like reading milton keynes i mean i think of the ones sort of that I, I know near near london actually that might that might help to eat away at that trend and it might actually be quite helpful for labor so I think that brings us nicely to a, uh, an equally as easy question, I say sarcastically. <laughs> but um, so how does Labour build a, a winning coalition again? And we've sort of heard talk about, is it by getting the red wall back? Is it by winning seats in the so-called blue wall? Is it something else? We've not talked about the um, not Scotland at all yet. Um, do you have a theory for how, how this can be done, whether it's the next election or one after or whenever it needs to be? So the... Interesting thing is, is that when you look at when you look at um, survey data, most people in the UK are left leaning on economics and in that, for example, they support greater government intervention to redistribute wealth. Um, They're quite suspicious of big businesses and think they should be regulated more. Um, They think that workers don't get their fair share of the nation's wealth. So you've actually got a majority of people who subscribe to views that you would have thought would be compatible with with voting Labour. The complication over, particularly um, since the Brexit vote, is that it's not just people are not just voting on economics anymore, though that that is that is still quite important. Um, you know, there's there's a sort of idea now of another axis, um, sometimes called the authoritarian liberal axis or sort of socially conservative, socially liberal. Um, so that sort of questions about, 
you know, do you support stiffer pen penalties for, for criminals? Um, it's very correlated with your views on immigration and it's highly correlated with whether you voted remain or leave in the, in the Brexit referendum. And so what you've increasingly seen, and this has been a trend really since 2010, is you've seen quite a lot of people who are quite left-wing economically, but socially conservative, moving away from Labour and towards the Conservatives. But this has actually, I mean, we know everyone obsesses, obviously, because Labour have lost the first four elections, um, about, you know, how, how Labour's coalition of voters, you know, the, that, that sort of alliance of often middle class, graduate, social liberal city types with the old traditional working class, how that has how that has fallen apart. But I mean, I think, you know, the, the thing is, is that the Tories now have got a fairly awkward coalition of voters, some of whom, many of whom are actually quite left leaning and yet many of whom are really not very left leaning. Um, and they've got to keep that together which I think now, I, my personal view is I think that we're about to find out that that's going to be quite hard. I mean, the Conservative Party naturally does not want to spend money. It does not really want to, you know, you, you, you've seen Rishi Sunak hinting at this. And I think the autumn spending review is going to be fairly tough. I mean, he's not, he's adamant that, for example, he's not going to keep the £20 uplift in um, uh, universal credit. So I think actually... You know, where Labour wants to be is that it wants politics to be about economics, because there is a majority in this country that does want greater state intervention, does want greater public spending, does want better public services, does want um, great, you know, a, a, a higher level, less, less, less inequality. Um, but the Conservatives have managed to sort of push that to the or not to the background but but certainly give it less prominence than it than it used to by um particularly of course um capitalizing on brexit but you know there's 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 an interesting problem that they face now that brexit is 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 supposedly done i mean and you know there's there's a whole debate about about that about whether it really is done whether you know um it will become an issue again but assuming let's just assume it isn't they then are actually going to struggle quite hard, I think, to hold together that coalition. And you can see all the attempts to sort of uh, almost ignite a culture war in the same way as, as, as you see in the States. Because, again, what unites their coalition is that social conservatism. And if, if attention goes away from that and back to the economics and back to the fact that actually the Tory government does not want to spend very much money, I think that their coalition is going to be in a lot more trouble. And that gives Labour an opportunity to unite that coalition around a, you know, around a kind of, a, what I would like to see is, is you know, a, a really transformative programme of government intervention that, that, I think that that people would really notice the difference in their in their everyday lives. I mean, and what and what that does mean is, you know, we do need to, you know, we we need to not get caught up in the culture wars, which I think actually Keir Starmer has done has done pretty well. Um, and I do, you know, I'm I'm actually reasonably optimistic that Brexit is. You know, I think it was a it was it was a moment in time that people were quite a lot of people were very angry about the idea of a second referendum, and you know, conversely, a lot of a lot of other people really wanted a second referendum. I think Labour's policy actually at the last election was absolutely right. If we had not offered a second referendum, we would have lost a whole load of Remain voters. So I don't think there was any easy answer to that. But I think if we move away from that immediate drama around Brexit, I think Labour is a much, much better position to unite its coalition around around an economic policy of, the, you know, of, of state intervention and redistribution. There's something we talk, oh, sorry. Uh, something we talked about with Tim Bale was that the Labour coalition yeah. was a lot more um, sort of coherent, I guess. And I, I'm sort of left with the feeling that it, that's in, sort of inevitable because it's almost like a, basically a core vote. You know, there's not much, after such a disaster in 2019, there's basically not much left. It's kind of a, a rump. So that's why it's sort of, uh, more coherent and the conservative one being 
um, because it's broader, is uh, yeah. more incoherent, and there's sort of long-term trouble ahead potentially but is then the missing dimension that we've talked about ideology we talked about the left right on economics social conservative social liberal is the missing dimension in this sort of trust and like basic competence that in order to tap into that left leaning on economics majority labor needs to be in the game in a way that we haven't been for a long time because under Ed Miliband and under Jeremy Corbyn the party wasn't trusted to be able to deliver any of the things it promised and that do you think is the sort of missing dimension? Um, I think I think that's certainly partly true I mean just just in terms of of um, you know leadership lead views on 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 the leader are just incredibly important and you look at the results of the last four general elections and and the gap in favorability towards each leader is is you know usually a reflection of 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 the overall results so it's interesting in 2017 Theresa May was marginally more popular than Jeremy Corbyn and you know the 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 vote reflected that it was it was fairly close but actually you know Jeremy by by 2019 Corbyn was just staggeringly unpopular um and you know Johnson actually wasn't all that popular but he was just a lot less unpopular than than Jeremy Corbyn so certainly choosing the right leader is is incredibly important um I mean I think you know I, I, I think certainly under the Cameron government they absolutely hammered Labour on um, supposed economic incompetence, uh, you know, something that still really winds me up, actually, <clears throat> um, in that they sort of essentially managed to imply that Gordon Brown had caused the global financial crisis, which is just, you know, utter nonsense, obviously. Um, but I think they kind of caught onto, I think there's there's a sort of almost default assumption amongst the electorate that Labour are bad with money. So when something, when an economic crisis happens under a Labour government's watch, I think the default assumption is, well, you know, somehow they must have done something to, to cause that. And, and clearly Cameron and Osborne capitalised on that. But I mean, I think what's really interesting is that by 2017, I think austerity had become quite unpopular. Um, hence the reasonably good result for Labour in, in, in 2017. And certainly Johnson has, at least in his rhetoric, moved entirely away from it and has, you know, has, has, has gone down this kind of levelling up route. Um, you know, whether or not he actually delivers on it, I think, is a, is a very, very different question. But I mean, I think, you know, the, one, of, one of the sort of underestimated problems that, that Labour faces is just the problem of being in opposition. And the problem that, again, by default, people are going to trust the incumbent government more than they trust an opposition who they don't know, who, you know, they, they um, you know, haven't been tested. Um, and so I think, you know, you, the, the last time that Labour got into power was after an absolute catastrophe for the Tories in terms of their reputation for economic management, which disappeared down the toilet in, um, on Black Wednesday. And really from that moment onwards, it was very, very hard for them to recover. Um, so it is, you know, I, I, whilst I think it's perfectly possible for Labour to assemble a, a coalition again, I think it's fighting very much against the headwind that by default, people are going to trust an incumbent government more unless they've done something terrible and you know you can't that's that's not within our power to change if, if, if the Tories screw up then then that's their screw up we can't cause them to screw up um so I think I think it is I think it can be quite hard I it, it's, it's, it's been very hard for the opposition to even get a hearing especially in the last 18 months because of the pandemic but you know, even even in you know even in 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 normal times. I mean, it's 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 something that I sort of quote a lot. Is is that you know people 
forget that in 2007, David Cameron was saying he was going to match Labour's spending plans. But a year later, he completely reversed that policy and started blaming Labour's spending plans for the economic crisis. But that's how little people actually take any notice of what the opposition says. Um, and it was and it was really, you know, a combination of having an unpopular prime minister and an economic crisis, which really swept Cameron into power. So, yes, it is. It's, it's hard. I think we're fighting against the headwind of incumbency. I'm going to attempt a summary and you can react. You think my <laughs> overly simplistic. So I think what the argument was, was that Labour can put back together something that looks like its old coalition that's doing quite well up in the Midlands and the North and well in London, not worry too much about Southern seats with sort of Tory Remain type voters, not worry too much about that. Um, but the, possibly it needs the current government to um, damage itself a bit on the economy. And to use, I think, the phrase that Keir Starmer used, a mask to slip a little bit in terms of them being oh completely not austerity now, I'm happy to spend and very sort of nice and generous. Is that right? And the, the little follow-up was, does that mean that actually Labour's, I don't want to say powerless, but has kind of just got to stay, stay, stick around and hope they mess up more than being able to really drive the narrative? Um, I, I don't think Labour is... Yeah, but broadly, broadly, I, 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 I agree with, with a fair amount of that. Um, but I don't think Labour is entirely powerless in the sense that if the government does is seen to to not deliver on its promises, you've still got to be a credible opposition. You've still got to provide a really good alternative um, to make people actually want to vote for you. So I don't think it's just you know, just sitting there waiting for the Tories to to, to mess up. We, 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 you know, we've. I, I think there are some things that we that we can do, and and we and we just need to. I mean, I think you know, I'm not. I'm hardly the first person to to say this, but I mean, I, I, I fear that Labour's problem at the moment is people just don't know what it is that the party stands for in a in a kind of post Corbyn world i mean the the one thing that you can say is that at least that they they felt they knew what labor stood for under corbyn they didn't particularly like it very much but at least that they had a sort of idea of what it what it was that um they were voting for or not voting for as as sadly the the case mostly mostly was um i i i do think that you know ab, absent some absolute catastrophe which you know to be honest I don't particularly want to see before this country I I don't I don't think that you know just sitting there waiting for West you know West, Westminster seats to fall into our lap is 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 necessarily a a, a a viable strategy I think we need to have a coherent narrative and a coherent story about what Labour would do to as to present an alternative to what I strongly suspect will be a failed Tory government. In terms of that um, being a sort of um, competent opposition, a credible government in waiting, is there a, a problem with a, a legacy that's been called Long Corbyn, which is that the, the party now presents itself, you know, we're, we've changed we're not like we used to be. But it is still the party that put the most unpopular politician of all time, pretty much, or certainly the most unpopular leader of the opposition, in that position for five years, kept him there. Um, and it's very difficult to shake off the legacy, not just of the leadership, but of the the party, the membership, the like at every level almost. Do you know what I mean? Is that a sort of credibility issue that the party will struggle to turn around in a very short time? I'm actually reasonably optimistic about that, and I'm not sure. I'm not sure I have necessarily got data to to, to back that up, other than anecdotal from what I've heard of you know people canvassing, for example, in even in even in Hartlepool, which of course the the um, by-election was was it was a complete disaster for us. But I think what people were saying was that the anger 
that they had encountered on the doorstep in 2019 had gone. Um, but I... I think the problem is, is, you know, you've, you've had this incredibly unpopular leader and then you've sort of got a blank. So if you're faced with that, then you're just going to, I think, just make the default assumption that that maybe nothing has changed just simply because you have no information. Um, so I think I, I, I'm not I'm not I'm certainly not someone who thinks that Starmer needs to go through a huge purge of, you know, everyone who ever signed up to a momentum email list. Um, I mean, I think I think he did. He did absolutely what was necessary about anti-Semitism and took a very hard line on that. And of course, suspended Jeremy Corbyn, um, which I think was the was the right thing to do. And I did think sent a really strong message that certainly on that particular issue, Labour had changed and we've seen a couple of groups being um uh banned as well in, in in the last couple of weeks but i'm not sure that we need or it would be very helpful in fact to go through a huge internal civil war again i mean you know people don't particularly find the idea of a of a party that's continually squabbling with itself a particularly attractive one when you're sort of thinking well these people are going to be uh, any good at governing the country if they can't even you know, uh, make up, make up with each other. Um, so I'm not. I, I think the bigger problem is, is that is 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 not that Corbyn's legacy necessarily endures. It's just that there's nothing in in its place at the moment. And I think that that that's the thing that that for me is missing. Um, I mean, I think I think generally, you know, what what you're what you're seeing with voters at the moment is just a lot much greater volatility. You know, the people that switch from Labour to sort of Labour to the Tories, a lot of them aren't particularly attached to the Tories. They don't particularly, you know, it's 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 not a sort of complete conversion as if it were to another religion. It's just that at that particular election, they saw the two alternatives and really didn't like the Labour one very much. I don't think it's necessarily an absolutely, you know, I don't I don't think it's impossible to, to win a lot of those those people back if we if we gave them the, the right offer. OK, thanks. Let's move away from the Labour Party a little bit and talk about the, the sort of wider context in which all the parties are operating. Now, you've mentioned the link between age and voting. So what explains that? And then can you put that in a sort of um, wider perspective by talking about it more widely, the issues of intergenerational fairness and unfairness, and one particular issue that's coming up at the moment, which is social care. So there's a few different things there, but hopefully all with the same theme for you to sort of get your teeth into. So age is age is really interesting, and a lot of that is to do with um, the expansion of higher education and the fact that younger people are much more likely to have gone to university than older people, and there is a very strong link between going to university and holding socially liberal views. And I think that's probably then compounded by the fact that you know, young people living in Britain today have always lived in a multicultural society. Um, they are much more comfortable with, um, you know, just 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 a whole range of a whole range of issues from the environment to LGBT issues than an older generation, which which didn't necessarily have to think about a lot of these things. So I think a lot of the age. Um, the age-relating voting preferences are down to that increased um, uh, salience of this kind of socially liberal versus socially conservative divide. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, even in the kind of 1980s, there were loads of young people voted conservative. And, and now it's sort of almost, you know, it's, it's, it's fairly rare to find, certainly amongst the youngest um, age group, people who, who, who um, vote conservative. I mean, in terms of in terms of intergenerational unfairness, it's it's actually you know it's it's a huge issue and yet receives relatively little attention. And I think you know part part of the problem with um, these these kind of age related voting, age related voting, especially for the Labour Party, is that young people 
um, have much lower rates of voting than old people. Um, and that's particularly true of young non-graduates. So, I mean, there's, there's a lot of talk about how, you know, loads of young people are politically engaged and loads of young people are politically engaged and, and, and it's brilliant, but most of those people tend to be graduates. And the half of the population that isn't graduates tend to have much lower political engagement and, and, and lower voting rates. So what that means, of course, is that politicians don't have to pay as much attention to the interests of young people if fewer of them vote, um, which you've certainly seen with the with the Tory government over over the last eleven years. I mean, just sort of stuff like you know, young people don't get the same minimum wages as as um, as older people. Um, and of course, the introduction of the triple lock pension was very specifically designed to shore up the Tory vote amongst amongst older people. So you've seen you've definitely seen a, a, a very deliberate on the part of the Tories a, a, a approach to to benefit older voters, often at the expense of younger voters. I suppose what I personally find frustrating then is that this doesn't galvanize more young people to go out and vote. I mean, there, there was that, you know, there was, there was the supposed youth quake phenomenon in 2017, but I mean, I think that's been rather, I think that was exaggerated. I think that the, the evidence is now that it, that yes, more young people did come out to vote for Jeremy Corbyn, but it was, it wasn't a, it wasn't an absolutely huge phenomenon. Um, so yeah, it's, 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 it's a slight, you know, and, 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 and Certainly, I mean, going back to my experience as, as a local councillor in, in, in terms of housing, it's, it's probably the starkest place where that intergenerational unfairness manifests itself in that high house prices, of course, benefit homeowners who tend to be older and they are to the detriment of younger people who are often um you know, private renters and who've who've you know increasing year after year find themselves even more priced out of out of the out of the housing market. And again, you know, I've I've, I've looked at stats that the fact is is that you know people who own their own houses are more likely to vote and people who rent are less likely to vote. And in addition to the fact that the majority of people own their own houses anyway. So there's just it just means that governments have relatively little incentive to do anything about it because the votes are on the side you know pre pre predominantly coming from older people who own their own houses so it's you know it's largely why nobody and you know and labor is as guilty as this uh, uh, nobody's really solved come up with a radical solution to, to to solve the housing crisis simply because it's electorally quite hard to do that you you mentioned the housing crisis and, and actually that that really preempted the the last question um but i'll pose it in a slightly different way um I keep hearing about on different podcasts and things and things I read about how um, home ownership is this big sort of determinant of voting. I, I, if you own a home, you vote Tory. And if you don't, you vote Labour, um, you know, oversimplifying, of course. And that, um, you know, from when you sort of listen to, I think it was the spectator I listened to, so I try and get a, a sort of sub, you know, broad section of views. And they have this theory that unless people keep owning more homes, that the Conservative Party is doomed. Now, I just wonder, do you, do you think that kind of talk is overblown? Is it is it over-optimism from a Labour point of view to think if home ownership stays low, that will naturally lead to a, um, you know, in, in years to come to a greater Labour vote? Um, there is definitely a link between home ownership, or uh, yeah, and 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 voting. Through. You are you are slightly more likely. And I was, uh, you know, I've, I've looked, I looked at some data on this. Even you know, if you if you look at people's political views, then you know, if you're sort of say middle of the road political in in terms of your political views, you are slightly more likely to vote Tory than if you're a homeowner than if you're a private renter, for example. I mean, it's not, it's not the hugest difference, but it's definitely there. Um, and definitely more people, and I, and I, you know, and obviously we, we you know, causation, correlation is, is, is not causation. We don't necessarily know that the moment you become a homeowner, you're more likely to vote Tory. But, I, you know, I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it's probable. Um, 
but I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, you know, it's not an absolutely huge effect. Um, I mean, there are plenty of homeowners who, who vote Labour, you know, including, including myself. So it's not, it's not a sort of absolute given. Um, I do think that over the long term, the Tories do have a problem and it's not just about housing. It's about um, the fact that if they keep going down this route where they alienate social liberals and that there are more graduates who are more likely to be social liberals coming into the electorate, then I think they are going to be in quite a lot of trouble. However, you know, this is a long term phenomenon and the Tory party have shown it has shown its ability to adapt to changing politics. So I'm not sure that that is necessarily going to automatically lead to uh, sort of, you know, liberal progressive government in, 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 in 20 years time. And, you know, even if it did, to be honest, 20 years time, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't really want to have to wait that long. Um, so I, I, I'm, I think there's, you know, I think there's, there's, there's panic in Tories. There's, there's, there's some panic, but I think it's possibly unwarranted in, in at least in the medium term. Can we just bring some of these threads together ever so quickly with the question of home ownership in specific areas? Does the question of home ownership explain to some extent Labour's loss at a red wall? That people might think of the red wall as a sort of homogenous. Uh, group but actually it was the loss of homeowners within the red wall that has lost labor a lot of those seats do you have any sort of data um to give insights on that yeah i mean it definitely in terms of data yes it is but i'm not sure that they lost those voters because they were homeowners i think they lost them more because they were older they were more socially conservative and uh, you know more likely to have voted leave, and those those are just things that happen to to, to go together. However, I think what's what what is really interesting, and sort of going back a bit to the Red Wall, is that in a lot of those seats you have very high rates of home ownership because housing prices are low. Um, and whereas, for example, in London you have much lower rates of home ownership because it's just so unaffordable here, but. Partly what that reflects is, I mean, in, in some ways, house prices are kind of like a, a, a vote of confidence in an area. If you want to live somewhere, then house prices go up. If lots of people want to live there, then house prices go up. If they don't want to live there, house prices go down. And I think that that's, that's what's quite interesting about these red wall seats is that they are places which have been in decline. And often they're not actually the poorest places in the country. The poorest, the most deprived places in the country tend to be in inner cities and they tend still to vote Labour. But it's just what you've seen in these places is, is often it's relative decline over the last sort of 10, 20 years that is reflected in low house prices, um, which is then reflected in, in high rates of ownership. But I suspect it's got more to do with, A, the type of people um, who own houses, which tends to be older, and B, the fact that these low house prices reflect a decline in the status of, you know, and I think, you know, the classic red wall seats are places which were very, you know, often very wealthy um, in previous decades. Um, but are, you know, because of the, because of industry, because of various industries that were located there, which have gone into decline over the last you know, 20, 30 years. So I think a lot of it is to do with the sense of decline, perhaps, rather than home ownership in itself. That's a fantastic insight. Thank you. And a really good uh, place, I think, to wrap up and uh, call it a night. So, look, Christopher, thank you so much for that. That's been a really, really good uh, podcast so once again thank you very much for your time well thank you for inviting me it's been a pleasure ah, that's cool good cheers steve as always thank you very much cheers martin and thanks again christabel great thank you very much for listening this has been the no man's land podcast thank you and goodbye <laughs>